When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel, we're your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Rob Mahoney of The Ringer, and of course, The Ringer NBA show as well. And as is often the case for the two of us, we have a wide-ranging but really interesting conversation, a lot on the top of the West, the trade deadline, a couple of exciting young teams, what we're looking for moving forward, lots of really great stuff here. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. Check out rocketmoney.com slash realgm and betonline.ag. Use the CLNS50 promo code to get yourself a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. This episode's well over an hour. I think it's like an hour 10 or in that range. Lots of great stuff here. I hope you really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, anytime, Danny. We're at an interesting point in the season because we're both, you know, about halfway. And so that means we have a lot of information, but we don't have all the information. And and the place I want to start, um, my colleague John Hollinger, both with The Athletic and Dunked on Prime, um, wrote an interesting piece for The Athletic earlier this week talking about how it's very rare historically for it. It gets complicated in terms of record and seed because of how the NBA used to do seeding. But for teams, let's say outside of the three best records in their conference to make even sometimes the conference finals, but definitely the NBA finals. And so he kind of framed that in terms of this Western conference. And my actually, and so my first thought was, well, the playoffs in the regular season are more different now than they have ever been. And I, I still, I believe that to be true, but there are significant advantages to, especially in the current system, to having one of the top three records. You're playing a lot fewer games on the road, a lot few, a fewer higher pressure games on the road as well. I would be curious too, as far as the road part of that, I haven't dug too deep into the data, but it seems like this is an unusually road poor season. And maybe that's just like a couple of teams that are that are swaying the metrics for me. <laughs> you know, the, the Warriors being case in point as just like a disastrous road team, despite the fact that they've been pretty solid at home. And I think that's what's leading to a little bit of this fuzziness. And it's like, is is the overall parity of the league pushing teams to poor road records? Or is there something else going on that's leading to really erratic standings that's put, get, giving us some teams that are in the, let's say, 4 to almost 11 or 12 range, depending on which conference you're looking at, that you could say, like, is it totally impossible that the Phoenix Suns could still make the conference finals? No, it's not. You know, and like th- th- those kinds of aberrational cases, I think we're going to be talking about for months, clearly, as we suss out this field. I think we're going to be talking about for seasons to come as far as is this an aberrational season and like a weird transitionary season as a whole? Or is this just kind of like where we're headed as a league in terms of the, the overall level of parity involved? It's a great point. 
and it will take time to for that to resolve and and i've also you know kind of adjusted on the idea over the last year or so that you know so for example he brought up that three of the teams towards the top technically the kings have now passed the pelicans but like the the nuggets the grizzlies and the pelicans all three of those franchises have never made the nba finals they've never won the western conference and so that would be impressive for those franchises to show kind of the shift in parity and everything else and there's also this element that you always are a little bit more hesitant to think of a team as a high-level contender until they've actually done it. And so you could, it could be a little bit of a lagging indicator. But part of that reason is that generally teams have playoff fits and starts before they really become that. But what makes the Nuggets and the Grizzlies a little bit different is to an extent they've had that. The, the Denver Nuggets made a conference finals. They've already they've already had that threshold. They fell to the Lakers but beat the Clippers, a team that, you know, is one of is some one that will intrigue from the from the bottom of the conference standings a little bit there. And then Memphis last year, they won a playoff series. They competed against the Golden State Warriors and they so they don't have that like full track record but they have that there and then the Pelicans of course they made the playoffs last year but they fell in the first round I love Denver's place in that conversation especially because I do think it's easy for some people to forget like just how successful they've been in the playoffs and in particular you know the conversation around Nikola Jokic trends in that direction too as far as like weighing his MVP case measuring him up against the other best players in the league and I think it's very easy to take for granted the fact that he's played at an incredibly high level in some really competitive playoff series against really, really quality opponents. And so when you think about what the Nuggets are doing in particular in that field and the success that they, they've they had and what they have to build on relative to some of these other teams out there, and especially as kind of a, a stylistic and philosophical counterpoint to what the Clippers are doing as far as managing injury, right? Like you have in Denver's case, Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray have had significant multi-season injuries and the way that they've been able to kind of build that into an organic uh, a culmination, right? Like a kind of building incrementally, easing those guys back into the flow to the extent that they can and doing something that's like a little bit more recognizable as a basketball product, just in terms of like the overall flow of a season versus, you know, a lot of ink has been spilled and hands have been wrung and pearls have been clutched about the way the Clippers are approaching that on the other end of things and just how like weird and disjointed it feels and basically how much confidence they must have in the idea, just the idea that when their best players on the floor, they're good enough to win because because the continuity is not there. The process is weird. Like seeing that team, there's no sense of seeing that team grow in the way that we're seeing the Nuggets grow over the course of this season. And so Denver, I mean, it's just like exactly the kind of team you would want to see have that kind of breakthrough because we've seen the incremental progress. We've seen the significant challenge with the injuries. It would be great to see a team like that overcome. But as you're saying, we're, we're just kind of blessed with a West field this season where almost no matter what, there's a feel good story. Like if the Grizzlies break through, that's an amazing story, both for that fan base, which never quite got over that hump, even with their kind of core four grit and grind days. Uh, and to see like John Morant elevate as a superstar in the process would be amazing to see Zion have a similar jump and the Pelicans, you know, in the wake of everything that happened with not only Anthony Davis, but Chris Paul with that franchise, the idea that they could finally have a breakthrough or the Kings crashing that party, as you said in the top three in the West right now, like I, there's not a more deserving fan base in the NBA just in terms of like the pure misery they have endured to get to this point. If they were to somehow break through even to a conference final, would you be, just be such, such a sensational outcome to, this, uh, to the season for that team and that, that organization? It's, 
I love the place we're in from that perspective. You know, I, I'm sure there's going to be crashers from, you know, all of the familiar parties. No one is counting out the Warriors just yet. The Clippers, I mentioned, like, are, are still going to be some people's picks to make it out of the West or at least make it to the conference finals on talent alone. Luka Doncic is going to have something to say about this before all is said and done and you know, was just in the conference finals last season. But that fresh blood, I think, is really healthy for the league. I think it's really healthy for the investment in the product, just from a fan standpoint. I think it's really healthy in terms of the incentive structures of how these organizations are thinking. Like, I think we, we gloss over and we discount too easily just the, the psychological lift for some of these teams to even just have like one breakthrough. Even if it's ultimately kind of a, a flash in the pan and you can't replicate it, having that one season of success is such an important thing for so many organizations. Absolutely. And I love the way you phrase that. And it underpins a lot of what you said. But a one one thing to emphasize again is that the, the group that you were focusing on, those are also overwhelmingly young teams. And so what that means is this doesn't have to be a high watermark. It could be. And, you know, a conference finals is a fantastic accomplishment for just about every franchise any year. Like there are only, only four that get there and very few should truly expect it in any given season. And so the idea that the Grizzlies, the Nuggets, the Pelicans, the Kings could be better in a future year that they're relying on these younger players. Like all of that is a distinct possibility, if not a probability for many of them. And even if they, you know, don't make it through the conference finals, then they get that valuable experience. And I'm sure that's been useful. And one other thing, Hollinger had this in his piece and and I, on the Nuggets, and I've been thinking about this. So, and a part of why Jokic gets so much love in the some of the models is the on-off disparity. And the Nuggets, especially in the first quarter of the season, were unbelievably terrible whenever he sat. Some of that is logical offensive theory. You know, you can't replicate Jokic, so you're going to have to do things differently. Another part is just that they were abysmal defensively. And a part of why they've been having this push is that their bench has been about even. The last little while, Zeke Naji's looking a lot more comfortable at the five. They've, you know, getting more players healthy has allowed them to kind of slide guys into, into other roles. And I always thought of that as a less material concern for the playoffs, in part because you just play your best players more. But getting that closer to solved, if not fully solved, at this juncture makes a massive difference because it just gives you a chance in a lot of these games that would have been bigger problems. I mean, it's exactly the case. And especially with them, too, their lineup data is so funky, especially because of that weird, like, Bruce Brown effect in the starting lineup, where mm-hmm. for some reason they just, like, could not get on the right page defensively when he was plugged in at the three, which, uh, you know, understandable, an undersized player at that position. Not a lot, not a team with, like, a ton of length, one through three to begin with, um, unless Michael Porter Jr. is out there. Like, that's the exception. And so, like, that data is still weird. But just the idea of shifting, for example, a guy like Bruce Brown from spot starter early in the season when when they had guys out with injuries to now like almost a situational player you know he's not their most important bench player and so there are going to be games where he just doesn't get a ton of minutes but you can throw him into any number of combinations of lineups any number of roles and especially with someone like Jokic who when your best player is transposable all over the floor you know like he can work high post he can work low post he can be doing dribble handoffs well beyond the three-point line if you want him to do that he can be working from wings he can be working from the top of the floor that makes someone like brown even more valuable in that context just from the sheer the sheer variety of ways that he can cut and attack 
And so having that kind of flexibility as you're talking about managing a rotation in the regular season versus managing a rotation in the playoffs. The biggest thing with bench players is like most bench players, if you force them to play all the time in all contexts, are not going to stand up by the numbers. That's why they're bench players. But if you can control the situations in which you deploy them, the numbers can start looking really good. And I think that's some of what Denver is doing too. It's not just Bruce Brown, it's DeAndre Jordan versus, as you were saying, Zeke Najee, who's given them really good minutes. But there's some games where Jordan is really important for them. And there's going to be some games where, like, you know, Bones Highland is going to be a fixture, but there's going to be some games where a healthy Jeff Green is going to be really important to the rotation. Some matchups where Christian Brown is really important, just as far as, like, who he can guard and what slot he can fill. And so they, they're a great example of a team that's finding that flow as a course of getting healthy, as a course of, okay, we know who our, our solid, most reliable players are. We know the positions that they fill. We know like when they want to come in and out of games and what combinations of those players work really well. Now these other guys, we can start to tailor their roles to what they do best and tailor their roles to the games that actually suit them. Along that front, I mean, with the Pelicans, they haven't been healthy at all this season. They, they're even if you want to go with their three best players, like those guys haven't really had it together at the same time. And that has put their support players in different positions. I think those support players have done well. I think Willie Green has done a great job so far. But you do have this question about, are they just waiting to start kind of cooking with gas to, to fire it up and just get there? And they could be. And the Pelicans have been, when they've been even remotely healthy, like last year, they had that horrendous start, which Brandon Ingram missed most of, and Zion Williamson missed all of. And then after that, they became a much more respectable team. They're, you know, they're currently right in that mix. They're, I would say, you know, if I had to guess that I have them above the Kings in terms of expected value the rest of the way. And going back to the original concept, I think what's so fascinating about the statistical stuff, and and yes, like he had Tolentred the stat that like 90%, 90% of NBA finals, both teams have had one of the three best records in their conference, is it's absolutely fair to argue that this can be in the 10% when you consider the difference between the regular season and postseason and some of the more established teams having injury issues so far. And remember, we're not we don't even know what teams have the three best records. But there's also a distinction, and I think that's going to be really interesting this year, between some of these lower-seeded teams winning a series and winning, let's call it, three series. Because the Warriors or the Clippers or the Suns, winning a single one, especially if they end up with a more favorable matchup than you'd expect based on seeding, absolutely not a problem. But doing that three times when you're presumably the road seat team three times and you're facing presumably better teams each time, it's a lot to ask. And for a team like the Warriors, they haven't shown, even when they've been healthy and everything else, they haven't shown the consistency that they've had in their other stronger years. And that's where we're kind of circling around what, to me, is the biggest question at this stage in the season, as we're trying to figure out who these teams are, what's what, where they're going, and, and by, you know, for that matter, what they're going to do at the trade deadline and who needs to actually like meaningfully upgrade at this stage in the season. The question for me is, who do you trust? Like when you look out at the standings, when you look out at the field, everyone is coming and going. Everyone is shuffling up and down. They're packed so tight. Like what are the things that at this stage in the season we can really, really trust? And that to me is kind of very similar to the to the question you're posing of like who can not only win one series but three? Because there's a team 
at Cleveland, for example, who I have a lot of faith in, and I, I really like what they're doing. Tremendous faith in their defense, especially. But if they hit the wrong matchup, they're kind of cooked. Like, you know, if, if they play the Nets and they have to figure out how to guard Kevin Durant with their bigs who like are going to take away the rim, but the Nets don't really want to go to the rim. And with their wings who just don't have the length to match up with someone like KD, like that's going to be such a huge problem for them. And you could say the same thing about if they have to play the Celtics and have to guard Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. You know, the, the, the problems that all these teams kind of pose for one another in that chess matchy kind of way, they're just teams that you trust in like more of a broad sense. And yet they all have their own caveats. Like maybe the Bucks would theoretically be one of those teams, but they haven't been healthy all year. And so then by default, you're looking at, okay, there's teams like Boston that, you know, if we're talking about, you know, potential finals contenders outside the top three, I mean, Boston is, they've been just hands down the best team all season long. Like in the East, it may be as simple as just the number one seed is going to go to the NBA finals again, um, in their case, just returning. But when you look at the West, like what do, what do we really trust there? And I think you can either, tr- you know, you could trust what the Warriors have built historically, but as you mentioned, it hasn't really been there this season, especially defensively, just like have not been on the level that they were even last year when they were like, quote unquote, kind of pulling it together over the course of the regular season. You could trust the talent bases of teams that have been injured, like the Clippers, as I mentioned, or the Pelicans, like you brought up. You know, I, I think at this point in the season, Zion and Ingram and CJ played something like 150 minutes together over the course of the year, most, most of which CJ was playing very poorly at the time. So we just have no idea... It, like was that a, a product of what that team was at that stage in the season, and they would be something even even further transformed when those when those three guys reunite on a full time basis and are really able to kind of get like their rhythm and really acclimate as a trio? Like, is, is that a thing that's just going to take off, or do we even have enough data to be able to trust their success in that limited sample so far this season? Much less, obviously, they've been able to handle every other scenario. You know, just kind of improvising and plugging guys in. They've been incredibly deep and incredibly effective despite those injuries. But like, what do you? What is it that we put our faith in there? Is it like the combination of those players? Is it Zion specifically? Is it looking at Dallas and just saying like, I trust Luka Doncic more than almost any other player in this conference. Is that enough to get you to the NBA Finals? Like, I find myself circling those questions all the time. And to be honest, a lot of them bring me back to Denver. A lot of them bring me back to Memphis's defense is something that I really trust. And obviously, Boston is a part of that conversation, too. Like, I think the East is a little more clarified in this regard. But the West is just so hard to know, even on a nightly basis, what you can put your faith in. On top of all that, there's the element of which coaches do you trust? And a lot of unproven, lightly proven playoff coaches in the Western Conference. And, you know, like the resumes aren't aren't all fantastic. And, and some of them, like I think Michael Malone did some did some really good things in 2020. But they also, you know, they 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 also had some really rough defensive series and that's not all on Jokic and everything else like they Gary Harris I I firmly believe Gary Harris is what saved them from losing in the first round in 2020 him coming back and helping provide a defensive foundation for that team and for so and then you you have you know with Taylor Jenkins I thought he did some some good things last year but also they're they were kind of a mess against the Wolves and like that series was incredibly fun but it wasn't a series that made you think the Grizzlies were just gonna run roughshod through teams that were even or worse than them, which is a really valuable part of the playoffs. It's something I've grown to appreciate a lot more during this Warriors run that I've covered now for seemingly a decade, where getting out of series before the team really threatens you really matters, not only in terms of maximizing your probability of victory, because when you make it 100%, that's nice, but also minimizing the chances of of variance and potential injury. You know, like those injuries that happen in game six or game seven of a series that should have ended in five. 
those always loom large and gives you a little bit of extra rest and all that. On the Cleveland front, I've been thinking about them a lot recently, and it's unfortunate that Donovan Mitchell, like we don't know how much time he's going to miss, but he's he's going to be out for, you know, missed miss the game yesterday. Be- because uh, Bowser to Bowser had a good thing on this, and it's something I've been thinking about separately, and it actually connects to the Warriors as well, which is the Cavs have a specific vulnerability against opponents that have four or more viable shooters on the floor, because what that means is they can't have their two best rim protectors around the basket. Like, And the one why I said this parallels with the Warriors is, there was a long stretch early in kind of their ascendance where Draymond Green would basically guard the power forward irrespective of who that power forward was. And like you have the famous example of Bogut guarding Tony Allen, but Draymond was doing that. And so that meant when they played the Rockets, Draymond Green was guarding Ryan Anderson and he basically couldn't do anything and help defense because you just can't physically be in the same place. And so for Cleveland, it challenges the concept. And so if they're players that you have to have to actively guard, we've seen some of that with this with the Celtics defensively. They love to put Robert Williams on a non-center so that he can muck everything up that way. And so what's fun about it is part of the challenge of the playoffs is that in each round, you're facing higher caliber opposition. And one of the things they often have is better overall talent and better overall force spacing because those are selected for in the playoff process. And so we will have these questions with the Cavaliers, with New Orleans, kind of what what can, what is their offensive foundation? What always works? What doesn't always work? How do they respond to that? Everything else like that. Who who are viable playoff players? And so your reward for making it through one round is a bigger challenge for the next round. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. It absolutely is. And uh, yeah, the Cavs are a great case in point for exactly those reasons. It's going to be a great test for J.B. Bickerstaff to see like what he's willing to do, not just in a regular season like we're building habits since, but in, in those matchups specifically. And I, I love I love the point you raised about the coaches and just like who, who can you trust from that standpoint? Because we're at a bit of a turning point in terms of like which coaches are going to be in charge of the most important teams in the field in terms of like the, the highest seeded teams in the field. Like if you look at the top five in each conference, for example, right now, you've got Missoula, you've got Bud, you've got Doc Rivers, you've got Jacques Vaughn, you have Bickerstaff, you have Michael Malone, Taylor Jenkins, you have Mike Brown, Willie Green and Jason Kidd. Who is the coach in that group that's like, I would bet my life that they are going to make the exact right moves in a playoff series? Is there a single coach in that group you would have that kind of faith in? No. And <laughs> a lot of the ones who are more established, one of the things that is established about them, looking at you, Mike Budenholzer and Doc Rivers, is their playoff baggage and some of the poor adjustments that they've made in the past. So the experience part of it, and yeah, the, some of the most highly regarded coaches in the NBA, whether you want to talk about Popovich or Spolstra or Kerr, or for those who are big Ty Lue believers like they're not they're not in this either and some of these coaches will make that reputation like that's that's part of the fun the fun of this is that we and and I mean Jason Kidd is a phenomenal example of this Monty Williams who is not coaching one of the top five teams right now is one too where just like players can adapt involve evolve and improve coaches can too and so hopefully that happens and and for some of them it's just we don't have the reps like we have no idea what Joe Mazzu is going to do in a playoff series because he's never been a head coach and so that will be a key question and we both fully expect that the 
Celtics will be in that mix. I love that point. I want to go in a slightly different direction. Uh, So we're three weeks from the trade deadline as we record this podcast. And there has been, justifiably so, a lot of attention on these teams. The Bulls and the Raptors are key examples of that, of the like the reluctant or non-sellers. And so these teams that are could potentially either just not put their best players on the market, that could could do other things. Maybe they're waiting. Maybe they're not going to do it at all. And we'll we'll probably talk about that in a bit, but I want to emphasize the other side of this because it always takes two to tango. And we've seen a lot of these big trades, including over the offseason, where teams give up, you know, two, three, and four first round picks. And so there's been a lot of focus on the star players not being available. Correct. But the other part of this being so wide open and also just the players that happen to be available being a little bit idiosyncratic is that I don't identify a team that, whether we're talking about the surprising top teams or the established teams or anything else, that is that sees what's going on and their own current assets and says, we're going we're going in and we're going in hard. Like, theoretically, if DeMar DeRozan gets on the market, who's giving that kind of aggressive offer for him? Yeah, I think the, the market for players like that, the, the people who would be aggressive movers, feels much more like the, the people on the fringes of the play-in conversation, right? It's like, it, it's, it is teams like the Lakers. It is, it is teams with veteran guys who don't really have anything else to play for if you're not going to try to be competitive. And and some of that is the re- like like we've been talking about with the West teams, the teams that are in the thick of it right now. Like there are the veteran groups, there are the teams that are that are anchored by you know your Giannis's, for example. There are teams like the Warriors that you know at least their more reliable players are their veteran group. But the rest of these teams are pretty young, and that means like their core guys, and even in some cases the supporting guys are not necessarily players you want to give up on for the sake of like can we move up a seed and and maybe be a little bit more viable for this year's playoffs, but in the process bring in a veteran who, you know, depending on who it is, maybe only has a year or two left on their contract, maybe isn't really a part of your long-term core. And certainly you don't have any idea of how they're going to fit in. So like the arms race aspect is always interesting when you're talking about the top of the standings, when you're talking about like dramatic changes to what you do. And it, it's always going to like tilt the league a little bit more toward, you know, I, I would say, you know, further away from the Sixers taking a big swing. What was that four years ago, five years ago when they traded for Jimmy Butler and closer to the Bucks acquiring PJ Tucker, you know, like a, a, a core part of your team, someone who's going to play big minutes, but someone who doesn't upset the balance of what you have, you know, or or even like the Celtics acquiring Derek White, for example, another another good example of just like an elevating piece, but one that doesn't dramatically change anything about your team. It's just hard to imagine, like if you're with the with the league as wide open as it is, and, and we're talking about teams that are going to be outside the top three, have a real shot to make the conference finals or beyond. Are you are you going to upset the apple cart for what are potentially like pretty marginal gains? For sure. And on top of that, a related point, especially for a, for a team like the Pelicans, is that the, at the the richest asset teams, so the ones that have that can most logically make these kinds of trades, I don't think they're quite ready. And the players that they would do that for aren't particularly available. So like I brought up before, you know, like the Pelicans and the Thunder, the idea that they have to be patient with this, I think is is a little bit misconstrued. Like, I think they can do that. Or not misconstrued. It's just, I, I just don't disagree with it. Like, new, could New Orleans go in, theoretically, were a guy like Kevin Durant available? I would love to see it. Like, you could do that direction however they want to handle this, like, the picks they have from the Lakers, which are 
juicy if you don't believe in the Lakers and everything else. Um, And Oklahoma City, I mean, we'll talk about them in a little bit, but like if they wanted to, they could get better for right now, not significantly change their overall base and add a player who could make a difference for them moving forward. Part of the problem, though, is that those aren't DeRozan destinations. Those aren't really Zach Levine destinations. Those aren't even necessarily like Pascal Siakam destinations, you know, like those sorts of players that could be on the market and be really interesting that they kind of fit in in a different place. And also the Thunder and the Pelicans have a lot to figure out. The Pelicans haven't been healthy. The Thunder are still in process. Chet Holmgren isn't even playing this year. So you have those elements, but the teams like the veteran teams that don't have a long window, like the Bucks, like the Lakers, they don't have the resources because they already made those trades. And the nuanced exception to that could be the Warriors, but A, it doesn't sound like the Warriors want to trade those players. Anthony Slater wrote a piece for The Athletic on, I believe, Wednesday that talked about that. But the other question with the Warriors is, are other teams truly interested enough in their guys that if they wanted to make a move like that, they could? And my answer is no. Lots more to discuss with Rob Mahoney, but first a message from Rocket Money. Do you know how much your subscriptions really cost? Most Americans think they spend around $80 a month on subscriptions when the actual total is closer to $200 or even more. That's right, you could be wasting hundreds of dollars each month on subscriptions you don't even know about. And that's why there's this awesome app called Rocket Money, formerly known as Truebill. The app shows all your subscriptions in one place and then cancels for you whatever you don't still want. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't know you were paying for. You might even find out that you've been double charged for a subscription. To cancel a subscription, all you need to do is press cancel. And Rocket Money takes care of the rest. So get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Go to rocketmoney.com slash realgm. Seriously, it can save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com slash realgm, R-E-A-L-G-M. Cancel your unnecessary subscriptions right now at rocketmoney.com slash realgm. And the other thing, too, about the the potential sellers in that conversation or the non-sellers you were talking about with teams like Toronto or Chicago, for example, maybe the question isn't like, where does DeRozan fit, but where does everything else fit? You know, sure. like there's there, there's that style of teardown, too. There's the, you know, can we get on the, in on the like Alex Caruso derby part of that conversation as much as there is the DeRozan part? But I do I do want to zero in on the Pelicans because I, I think you're right to bring them up as maybe the most fascinating case, like certainly a great test case and a good conversation starter as like not only a what do they need kind of conversation, which I think is fascinating in its own way, but more so like from an operational standpoint, a great like riddle of when you move in. Because as you said, they they could be in the conversation for some big stars, were, were big stars to be available. They are a team that doesn't have to wait. I think you're I think you're absolutely right on that. Like they could make a really aggressive move pretty quickly. And certainly like they they've been in such a state of flux all season that what's a little more flux, frankly, if you were to make a midseason trade. But they're also in that weird functional redundancy. Uh like if they don't if they don't trade something, their roster is just gonna be a glut of players who can't get on the floor, of and, and like good young players who can't get on the floor. And so do you try to get ahead of that kind of challenge by preemptively trading guys whom you know to be good? Like the Dyson Daniels is a good NBA player. You know, like I would love to see what he could become as a long term member of that core. But do you dangle him in potential trades just for the sake of knowing we have all these picks coming down the pipeline? We're already struggling to get all like to get our best wings on the floor right now. And Brandon Ingram isn't even playing. How are we going to even make all these pieces fit when, when it comes time to actually make these picks? 
there's that's a great point and there's another one related to it which toronto can be instructive here which is eventually you're also going to have to pay those guys and that becomes a huge problem especially if even if ownership's willing to pay the tax they're not going to be willing to pay the tax forever and the other way that toronto well toronto's example i i think Basai Ujiri is the best general manager in the league and we don't know where this came from but the idea that your windows to buy and your best windows to buy can be short and we don't know exactly what the Scotty Barnes negotiations with the Nets, Scotty Barnes, Kevin Durant negotiations with the Nets looked like, but Toronto would be in a fundamentally different place if they had put him in and that was enough to get the deal done. And there is an argument that this is the, you know, that if eventually they sell off or whatever, that that's the, the ebb and flow of the franchise. But sometimes the time to buy is earlier than you think. And when it's your window, you're not going to be there. And incidentally, like, I mean, it worked out, it's worked out pretty well for Boston. Boston has been in that situation too, where it's like, well, you want their best players to be a little bit older and then, but then they ended up being good enough to, to support it. So it's, it's always a hard conversation. And for the tippy top, and th- this is the other New Orleans challenge, is let's say they could get into the derby for a Miles Turner or a, a player who's a, a clear starter and potentially an upgrade for them, but requires assets to acquire. Let's say, let's say we're in that group. If you give up those assets, even though they have a ton, that might weaken your standing to make the game changer if that's what comes to pass. And like we've seen teams like what the Knicks have done over the last little bit and a few others where it's like, you know, you're going to need a lot of ammo because that's just where the league has gone. Do you want to sacrifice some of that and potentially make it so that you don't have enough so that if player X, you know, I'm not saying he will ever be available, but like, let's say it's Jalen Brown, like that you would have to have the best offer. You'd have to bowl them over. I don't think it's going to be Jalen Brown, but you know, whoever that ends up being. Yeah. I mean, those timing questions, that's the kind of stuff that like keeps you up at night. I would think as a general manager, as, as an assistant GM trying to like lobby and make like you you want to be advocating for the exact right move at the exact right time. Those kinds of core pieces are are impossible to be able to peg com- with complete accuracy. Like you're, it's straight like projection. It's straight expected wins. It's straight like trying to get to the absolute bottom of not only the players on your roster, but really understanding what the entire field of play is going to be looking like as far as like future transactions down the line and anticipating those markets. But like the first mover advantage is so strong for some of these teams. And like I'm thinking specifically about Toronto and Chicago that like I I think the the way to think about it in terms of where the league is right now is that if you are these teams who can afford to be giving up complementary players without sacrificing like whatever the long term trajectory of your franchise is, there's going to be so many interested buyers. And so if, if you are Toronto and, you know, whether you think of yourself as a Scotty Barnes team, as a Pascal Siakam featuring Scotty. Barnes team as I think I think we've kind of run the course on whatever Operation Six Nine was like I think they probably need to kind of go back to the drawing board a little bit as far as like this this uh, uniform length and and switching and like trying to make that thing deploy it really just hasn't quite gotten off the ground the way they wanted but they're exactly the kind of team that to me could jettison pieces and 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 like really take advantage of where the market is right now as far as like the teams that are willing to go in big for like moderate deals that that are willing to take a reasonable swing to get slightly better in the standings that that are willing to kind of take advantage of the other side of that of teams that Yes, they may want to make a big deal down the line, but they're staring down this conference p- picture. They're seeing the exact kind of role player that could help them, and they might just jump on that. 
There's also the first mover's advantage and the idea that waiting can really shift things. It was it was funny, Nate and I were doing our deadline preview for the Pacific yesterday, and it was like, Harrison Barnes has kind of become an afterthought. And part of that is because the Kings have gotten better enough that they can actually use him. But another part of it is, he was simply, you know, like, were the, were the Kings to make him fully available, the return they would get for Harrison Barnes now is significantly less than they would have gotten a year ago, two years ago. And so, for Masai Ujiri, there's this additional question of do you want to give these guys their next contracts what kind of team are you committing to if you do that and what does waiting get you in terms of information and what does waiting cost you in terms of resources and it's also worth remembering like i panned the magic for doing that with vooch i thought they held too long and then they got a stronger return for him than i thought was even reasonably possible the commitment in terms of contracts is something that you know we talk about we certainly like it factors into the analysis but i think a lot of times even when when big deals are signed over the summer when huge extensions are handed out there's this sense that like even if this team doesn't fit you could just unload this guy and i think some of what we're kind of tackling in, in the entire breadth of of the sprawl of this conversation is that it is it is never easy like it is never as easy as you think to unload the guy for the exact kind of return that you're going to want at the time that you wanted like what makes the NBA so so interesting, what makes the transaction game so interesting is that like every team in itself just has a million moving parts. And they're also dependent. It's like a Jenga tower of not only players and skill sets and teams with motiv- different motivations. And each of those players has their own motivations in terms of what they want out of their career, of their role, like how they're kind of eyeing. Like if this team make it traded, does that mean I get 12 extra minutes a game and four more shots a game? But in, in addition to that, you have the, the Jenga tower of content contracts and when those things are expiring and how they're all kind of coming up at different times and the motivations that that creates for teams. And so the idea that, you know, if you're if you're just kind of like assume like accruing a good talent base and acquiring all these great players and then you're just going to commit to them on whatever contracts it takes to keep them, I think there is value in that. And certainly for some of the smaller market franchises out there, there is value in being the kind of organization that like you come here because we know how to identify talent. We're going to develop you well and we're going to re-sign you and extend you. And like you were just like a part of what we do. There is a value to that. But the idea that you can just like do those things and the Raptors are a great example, a great developmental franchise, like, like just has a great developmental support structure. They have so many success stories of guys that have come through and just become either totally different players or just the best versions of themselves. And then you get to this point and you still have to make those decisions of like, we might give this guy a a three or four year contract that's pretty hefty because the market demands it. And then we're going to be stuck in this limbo state of not really knowing who we are, of not really knowing what direction we want to go in. But we're stuck like on the we're basically caught on the line of trying to move this guy for it could take two seasons sometimes to trade a guy for the exact kind of package you want. You brought up the idea of like all these decisions happening and kind of building off each other. And I'm going to go in an unusual direction. And the reason why will will make sense in a sec. And that's the Charlotte Hornets. And so I was tooling around the last couple of days with a uh, with a, 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 a not technically called a dynasty, but an NBA 2K with the Hornets, in part because eventually I'm going to my idea is I want to cheat the system so I can play LaMelo and Wimbanyama together and see how that works. Um, that's the end game here. But I was like, okay, so I was going through their their deadline. And I was like, well, you know, find a home for Mason Plumlee, find a home for Kelly Oubre, because they're not necessarily part of the long-term future. They can leave if they want, all that kind of stuff, make the team worse, maximize the draft pick. And I was like, okay. Then I just kind of simmed through and got to the offseason. And I was like, 
oh great, now I have to deal with PJ Washington's restricted free agency, Jalen McDaniel's unrestricted free agency, and whatever in the world is going to go on with Miles Bridges. And like, it's incredible how many of those things, like the Hornets are a distinctly irrelevant team this year. Hopefully that will change very quickly. And they have this mountain of decisions, incidentally, all of which occurring at almost the same positional grouping. And it's like, that's how it is. It's not always that extreme, but that's how it is for almost everybody. It's you have all these long-term, short-term positional balancing. And in their case, like all the other kind of stuff that they have to consider. It's just like, it's a really hard job. Extremely hard. And you know, like the cases within cases for that, like PJ Washington is exactly the kind of player who as a restricted free agent could get a really bloated offer sheet from somebody. You know, like you could see some team talking themselves into, oh, this guy who can like kind of stretch and kind of roll and is like a, a decent facilitator and also a decent shot blocker for his size. Like he could plug so pre- he could be our small ball five. He could plug perfectly into what we do. And yet, as the Charlotte Hornets, he's pretty indispensable to your team, like at least into the to the construction as it exists now. And Jalen McDaniels, like, what is Jalen McDaniels worth to a team like the Hornets? Who the Hornets could be, they could be in the playoffs next season. They it could take them like four more years to get back into the playoffs. Like at, at this point, even with Lamelo being as exceptional as he is, almost nothing would surprise me because of the rest of the team is so unstable in that way. And a lot of that comes down to the Bridges part that you brought up, which is a can of worms in such like a, a much more big bigger a bunch of bigger and more moralistic way but just in pure basketball terms that was a player that they were counting on building around who is not there anymore and right and frankly rightly not there anymore and I, I really hope we don't have to have the conversation in weeks or months about them re-signing him i really hope we don't get back to that place uh, but as far as like that like again these are these are the tiniest decisions being made by as you said one of the most irrelevant teams in the league and yet every they're all thorny they they really all are like and you can and you can then you go into the summer and you can trace the implications of every one of those thorny moves into like the four or five teams that are tangentially involved like the other teams that are built that are bidding for pj washington are going to have to deal with some of the offshoot ramifications of that it's it's unbelievable like the, the level of like game theory essentially you have to try to play out as far as like if we do this what are the bulls going to do if we do this what are the sixers going to do it's nuts it really is and kind of related to all this and it's become a real point of of curiosity for me is the complication like i've thought i've talked about how like the free agency particularly lebron when he went to the heat has taught has made me think more about the players and potential free agents as people this is probably going to be the definitive deadline in terms of general managers decision makers as people because we brought up the the and uh, the raptors and the bulls as being kind of these the the some of the key movers in setting these things there's also the important consideration when you're trying to project what they're going to do that the people who are making the decisions about their roster and a big part of that is evaluating how good your team is now and moving forward are the same people who assembled it who brought these teams together and so like you think about Arturis and Masai like Arturis believed that Vooch was going to solve a lot of their problems and while I believe he hasn't Arturis is still there and so you have that and then with Masai Ujiri he basically drafted all these dudes and put it all together and so there is even as Ujiri has earned a reputation of being pragmatic and being at times a little cold-hearted 
which is generally a very positive attribute for a general manager. Like that allows you to make some of the good moves that he's done the best. But it's a lot harder to do that when not only did you put these players together, but they've succeeded. The Raptors won the title in 2019. And there's an argument that part of that, like if they could figure these smaller things out, then they would be good enough to justify keeping together. And so that is so much harder to do in reality than it is as an armchair general manager or in any other circumstance. And that's where you get into the conflicting motivations, too, of just to just to follow through on the example you brought up with Arturis. If you're in that position, like, I don't think there is a single argument that could be made that the Vucevic trade has been a success for the Bulls. We're all aware of it. Anyone watching the team is aware of it. Certainly the people who are running that team are aware of it. And yet, if you if you trade Vucevic, for example, if you like bail on that earlier than expected, even if you don't re-sign him and, and he walks, like the, the extremely public way in which you are announcing that was a failure often costs guys their jobs. And so it's it's like not only do you have the the constancy of perspective that you're describing in terms of like the person who made the trade is also the person evaluating the success of that trade and thus deciding if they need to make further moves or like were they wrong do they need to shift their opinion like their taste of players is probably still generally speaking whatever it was that led them to acquire that that player who didn't pan out in the first place like are they are are they going to go to some like logical endpoint that's like maybe everything else was wrong maybe this contextual factor was wrong and not this deal in addition to all of those things you have a person who you're basically you're basically expecting them in making the best move for the team to announce that they failed in their job in a way that often gets people fired. And that's just not a realistic thing to expect most human beings to do. You don't. And as, especially like in the Vooch case for the Bulls, like I, I have a piece that's coming out for The Athletic on, probably looks like it's going to be on Friday, about how there's also this kind of the cascade where if they're moving more than one of their key players makes more, or doing zero makes more sense than doing one. Because it's just like, well, what are you doing that for? The Bulls, if they're not making, let's say they trade Vucevic, but they're not, they're ke- intending to keep DeRozan and Levine, well, then you don't have the payroll flexibility to bring in somebody else unless you're doing that through the the trade and it's not like they have somebody in house that can that can solve that it then becomes the biggest need for the team maybe they could do it with the mid level and I mean, also, what are you getting for Vucevic? And you were thought highly enough of him to, to get something before. So are you willing to take a late first or seconds or a young player of interest, but not a like star potential? So so you have all that. And it's it's really challenging. And also, like, there are times that being sentimental, being believing in your vision ends up being correct. I mean, I, I pride myself and tried to do a good job trying to be objective. But there are times that they're closer to the pin than I am. And I mean, the Bulls were meaningfully better last year than I expected. Lots more to discuss with Rob Mahoney, but first a message from BetOnline.ag. BetOnline remains your number one source for all your sports betting this season. Everything from NFL playoffs to pro and college basketball, UFC, MMA, and more. You'll always find the latest odds, team matchup information, player news, and game trends at BetOnline. With live betting options, free contests, and live scores for almost any sport or game imaginable. BetOnline is truly the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite leagues and events. So head to the website today or use your mobile device and use the CLNS50 promo code to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Again, make sure to use the promo code CLNS50 to receive your rewards at BetOnline, where the game starts. 
And then the other key factor, and I don't want to dwell on this because you and I have talked about it before, is it a lot of people, especially owners, have significantly more appetite for being a consistent playoff team that also isn't really a threat to do to make much noise in the playoffs than I am. And I'm sure part of that is revenue based because if you're consistently relevant, fans are going to show up to the game. They'll buy tickets from March and April because they think they're going to be in the mix. And I don't find that as interesting, you know, to me, running a team, owning a team that doesn't have a high chance of making the conference finals. Like, I'd just rather not be in that place unless it's temporary because you're just waiting for the young dudes to get better, like the West we were talking about before. But in practicality, you see teams stay in that range. You see teams that are that aimed higher but kind of can't get out of that range, stay in that range. It's just it's just the way things are. There's something I do want to I do want to talk about a little bit in that regard as far as the appetite on on ownership's part for being a, a decent playoff team year in and year out versus let's say like willingly plunging to the bottoms of the league and accepting that you're going to be bad for an indefinite period of time to be fair but eventually you're you know could potentially be very good i wonder some if like the way that the league is set up now with the parity of it with the instability of it and most importantly with the three-point variance of it makes some of that a little bit easier to stomach as far as like the tanking element goes and it, maybe it makes the tanking harder because like you just might win more games than you think if if you have like even decent shooting on your team or just like the right kind of combination of, of skill sets and talent like you may just end up winning more games than you may have expected like I mean, I'm, not, I'm really not sure where the Oklahoma City Thunder for example like pegged their season to go um, I kind of thought they could be a, a surprisingly frisky and competitive team but that was expecting Chet to play and he hasn't and they've still been frisky and competitive especially of late but just kind of thinking about what is the toll of tanking and I think we think of it in like global terms like you you know a a 16 win season you know like that is an awful thing to think of it's an embarrassing total but in reality what's hard about tanking is the nightly endeavor of it it's showing up to the game whether it's as a player whether it's as a coach whether it's as an employee in any fashion whether it's as a team governor and it's like you don't even have a chance to win like you don't even have a shot to win that night and you do that 82 times like that's an awful feeling and it's certainly not what people are spending billions of dollars to buy a team to do but if the league is in a place where you can get a good lottery pick and you can show up to enough of those games thinking like yeah we're probably not going to beat the memphis grizzlies tonight but enough guys get hot enough factors swing your way the league is just in this in this fit in this state where it's like you don't know like maybe two of the three best players in the other team are going to end up missing that game and you do have a shot all of a sudden i wonder if it's just like a little bit easier to stomach tanking in the 2023 nba than even in like the 2018 nba that's a really fascinating thought and the idea of the variance in each game is is a really good one and something i'll add into that and this can kind of mark a transition to another thing i want to talk about is it might make the tank optional significantly more palatable and you you brought up the thunder i think of the thunder and the magic here and so this is a combination of the variance within the season and also lottery reform because it is now easier for a team with the fourth worst record or the sixth worst record to get into the top four maybe you don't get the number one pick but you get somebody who could be better than you would expect otherwise and Generally speaking, the part of the reason people around the league got really pissed off at the process Sixers was how brazen they were about it and how how it started at the beginning of the season. It was a multi-year plan and kind of everyone knew it. What the Thunder and to a lesser extent the Jazz, but the Jazz talent like as their team was constructed was just better. What they what they're doing is something that I think could end up being a model moving forward, which is you take the first 
50 games and you see where things are. You don't intend to do anything to weaken your roster. Maybe if a wild offer comes around for a player that you're not, that's not a part of your franchise, then you do something like, let's say a team made a wild offer for Gary Harris. Sure. Like you, you do something like that. And at that point to use a golf parlance, you play it as a loss. And so if you're in the bottom, then it's easy to further bottom. You know, you can do what I think the Hornets are going to do. And you find a home for Uber, you find a home for Plumlee, and and that's okay. Those guys are pending for agents. Maybe they weren't going to come back. But if you're a little bit better than that, and especially in some ways in those two cases, because they're relying the Thunder and the Magic, the success that they've had has been more relying on their young guys rather than being propelled by players who aren't a part of your future. So in that case, maybe you don't add, maybe you do the little things on the margins if it's somebody that you think can help you in future years. And that becomes so much more palatable because you still like, let's say you do that and then you don't tank, but you still end up with like the eighth worst record or the 10th worst record. Well, you you will end up, you could have a chance of getting a really good pick and maybe you can still do something where you are. And in the Thunder's case, you have enough assets that if you really wanted the sixth pick, you could get it if you want, like if you get number one, no, but six, you could do it. And so that area might actually be the more fertile ground overall, maybe because especially if the teams at the bottom are just bad, you can't pass them, but you can get to like the sixth worst record pretty easily. There's also the other part of that too, which is if you're so just like obviously irredeemably bad, Almost nothing about your season gets counted or honored in any way. Like, well, and you can't evaluate anyone involved. Absolutely, like it's it's almost not an NBA context. And so, in terms of like some of the rosters, like the lineups you're rolling out there, but also if you're just like you know 14th or 15th in your conference, like your sixth man is not winning sixth man of the year, right? It's it's just not happening. And like those those may seem like irrelevant things, but I think ultimately when we when we look out three years in the future, like the way Shea Gilgis Alexander played this season is going to be really important, and it's not. Not just because he announced himself in a very important way as being like a player of note and a player to watch and someone who basically on his own terms has been has been carrying that offense and really elevating and I mean all due respect to Josh Giddy and a number of players who are there having pretty strong seasons in their own right but like he's doing an unusual like amount of lifting there but there's also like a a really nebulous but important benefit to sending shade to the all-star game for example like to putting him in the orbit of other stars both in terms of like the peers that he is considered to be alongside and the outreach in terms of like who is who like what does the next thunder playoff team look like and is someone who's at this year's all-star game potentially going to be on it because that's a team with a ton of picks a ton of draft equity a ton of young players that they could package if, if and when they ever decide to move in like those things matter and so like p- announcing yourself on the league landscape isn't just like a pretty thing for writers or fans to get excited about like it has a functional purpose in terms of team building it, it matters to be seen as a team with a star on it and you're not a team with a star if you're in 30th like you're like no matter what every everyone may love in theory the idea of Cade Cunningham but until they see it they don't necessarily they're not like lining up to play with Cade Cunningham yeah I hadn't I hadn't fully appreciated in that sense and you could even tie in with Shea All-NBA like you are not going to make an All-NBA team if your if your team is has the fifth worst record you know it's just it, it, unless it's superlative and, and you're already established not going to be there and so for for Gilgis Alexander for the Thunder more broadly for their fans like it's a sign and it's also a sign of progress and the other important part of that the Oklahoma City Thunder could still make some noise in terms of this playoff picture and that's where I one of the other things so I, I picked the date at random I don't know how this fit in with everything for them just for fun 
I, you know, you can plug in dates, including the glass, and see, like, how things have gone during a specific range. And so I just did the season since December 1st. And the Oklahoma City Thunder, since December 1st, not only are they 13 and 10, they have uh, the they t- they have the 10th best net rating, plus 2.5, and the 7th best defense. Um, and so they're not, it's not like they're relying on all these, like, old vets or anything else like that. Like, this is going, and then, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's some shooting luck in there for them. You know, small sample sizes are more prone to that sort of a thing, especially for opponents. But that's something you can build on. And even if the season, like this, they they could, and you know, if they keep if they keep playing at an over 500 pace, when you consider where everything is, like they're one game under 500 right now. Like if they're if they're over 500 on March 1st, like they're probably at least making the play. They've got a real shot at it. And the other thing, too, is like not only are their kind of at a glance metrics good during that time frame, but they've got good wins. Like yes. they walloped the Celtics. They beat Dallas. They beat Brooklyn. Like they've ha- they beat Philadelphia. Like they have like pretty strong wins during that range. Like this isn't just them rolling over the bottom teams in the league. And that was always kind of the premise for them coming into this year was like they are an organization that's actually quite good at taking young talent, developing talent, guys who aren't even quite sure where to be and how to position themselves. And they just regularly turn out like 10th to 12th ranked defenses like they, they just that is what they do as an organization and some of that is like what they value as far as scouting and prospecting and drafting like we, we all know about that organization valuing length but you can even just see it in terms of like the kinds of guys they take on are are defensively oriented players typically especially especially when you're looking at like the supporting cast of those teams but they're just very good at organizing them in a way and mark dagnall's done a really good job of professionalizing that team despite the fact that they don't always like especially last season really didn't have a lot of high-end talent especially when Shea was out of the lineup but they make it work and so if you have that as your base like we're just gonna be you know somewhere between 8th and 12th on defense and this season we have one of the best scorers in the NBA and one of the most unstoppable drivers in the NBA like that's a winning formula that like teams have gotten deep in the playoffs based on that formula and so not only does it put you in a position to potentially be a spoiler this season not like you're not gonna upset anybody necessarily but you might steal somebody's playoff spot but going forward it's very easy to visualize oh if we just swap out this member of the rotation for a slightly better version of that kind of player it's easy to see how you how you scale from that point right and in their case and you could argue this for the magic too they're also players in-house like it, it isn't even necessarily you have to add this and both those teams could have cap space in the in the near term depending on how they want to manage all of this but also growth internally from i mean you could go with jalen williams or ushman jang or actually having Chet Holmgren available and Giddy and everyone else. And then like, so I brought up the magic before, obviously they haven't been as rosy during the same time period, but they've also had some meaningful absences, including a long Wendell Carter one since December 1st, they're 500, they're 11 and 11 and net ratings a little bit below water, but not horrendously below water. And I haven't pulled it in the last couple of days, but they have like a plus eight plus nine net rating when Carter, Bancaro and Franz Wagner are all on the floor together. And so you think about that as the foundation moving forward. And so having more success now does make it, you know, just in terms of the pure math of it, less likely that you get Wembenyama or Scoot. But also, were you going to be bad enough anyway? Like, is there a way that they could have done that? Probably not. Like, I mean, they weren't like the Thunder weren't going to bench Shea in December, like they weren't going to do that way. And, and you're building in a way that is sustainable. Like they're not doing the shortcuts. And I, I mean, I always find it funny when a team like, and, and I think this has worked better for Troy Weaver this year than it has, I think it did last year is like, 
they tried to win. They added win now veterans and just don't win anyway. And so like the the Pistons didn't embrace the tank the way that I would have, but they're they're right where they need to be anyway. And now, I mean, when I brought up Troy Weaver, it's like, well, they they if they want to do something with Bodanovich, they can. If they want to do something with Alec Burks, they can. Noel will be a little bit harder, but you could just walk away after this year. There's a team option there. And they did have the opportunity cost of, you know, they could have done something else with that cap space, but there weren't particularly great things to do with that cap space. So the idea for, especially the Thunder and the Magic of just give it a go, see what you have. And best case scenario, you have a better team or best case scenario, if you're one of those people, you, you're, you have a really good draft pick. And ending up in the middle is is significantly more tolerable. Yeah, I mean, when you have Paolo Bancaro, you're not really in the middle. You know, like it, right. e- even if you are you know, a couple wins above expected or, or a little a little bit more frisky for a month than you might have even wanted to be. But like again, as long as you have something to bank on, like the Magic for for better or worse. For all of their injuries, for the fact that like for large stretches of this of this, of this season, they just had like no guards that they could play on a nightly basis beyond like Terrence Ross, God bless him. But like they're finally back and healthy. They're finally able to kind of see what they have. And most importantly, what they have is Paolo and Franz Wagner. And whether Wendell Carter is the long-term center there or not, like he has had a good season. Like he does kind of fit alongside them in what they do. He has broadened his skill set over his two seasons in Orlando in particular, like in a way that makes him like visible and functional and identifiable as part of like a more versatile thing, which is in anyone they bring in is going to have to fit that framework when you're starting from a place of like our two giant forwards are great ball handlers then the question is like where does everyone else go and what can they do and how can we how how unconventional can we get and i think Wendell Carter's done a great job of while having a fairly traditional skill set broadening out just enough for that to make sense and where he can still lean on what makes him an effective and kind of traditional big man within those contexts and so like if you have those things in addition to some guards who like could be you know like we really just still don't know what Jalen Suggs is going to be as, as an NBA player. Ultimately, we still we're still figuring out on a night by night basis what Bull Bull is as an NBA player. Like, there's enough guys on that team with high enough ceilings that you know if you do miss out on Victor, but you still get a really good player in the draft, and you have all this other stuff that's already kind of been building and been uh, most importantly building together. I think that's an acceptable outcome. And and you still do have like whatever lottery percent chance of of getting the number 1 pick or a top 3 pick or wherever that demarcation line is for you. Like you're still in those conversations, but in the meantime you are building something. One last thing I want to discuss briefly, um in part I think you're a good person to talk about this with, um is an underlying big factor in this trade deadline in particular that it's going to be so hard because it's almost all going to be non-reported unless something happens is the negotiations and the positioning of the players in the potential trade block who are unrestricted for who could be unrestricted for agents after this year so they can put their thumb on the scale. We we know it with stars. Like, that's a more established thing that, oh, oh I'm not going to resign there so you don't do something else. But, like, Miles Turner, Jordan Clarkson, Jakob Pertle, like, they're not mega stars. They're not putting, they're not doing anything else. I mean, and you could even, if you wanted, if he wanted to do it, you could bring up Kristaps Porzingis for this too. Of, this isn't a really good time if you want to be somewhere long term. This is a really good time to make that more likely by saying, Either I'm not going to resign with you, or I'm I'm this is what I'm thinking, or something else. And there's no villainy in that necessarily, or anything like that. 
But the reasoning is, in some some ways, even though teams have more cap space in the summer, you're also giving that franchise a signal. And a lot of the teams, because this is going to be a low cap space year, don't really have the ability to sign you outright. So if I don't know what in the world Miles Turner wants in his next contract, it could just be maximizing money. It could be we want to play on a specific team or anything else like that. Well, now's a better time to do it than the summer, as weird as that is to say. It's absolutely a better time to do it. And like, if anything, this feels like the Kyle Kuzma music to me. Right? Sure. Like th- there's a reason his name keeps coming up. There's a reason he's appearing on national podcasts at the moment. Like, this is this is your time if you are a player who's staring down not only unrestricted free agency, but if you have like a way below value player option, like I believe Kuzma does. You're in that conversation too. And on the other side of that are the guys who probably could be in that conversation but are so, almost like so essential to their teams at the moment that a trade just isn't likely. And it, it, th- those are obviously the teams that are trying to figure out some kind of extension options. For example, Christian Wood comes to mind in Dallas. Jeremy Grant comes to mind in Portland. Like those guys are, are way too important for their teams to just like trade them. And yet if, if you were Christian Wood and didn't want to play in Dallas next season – like you could easily make that make that opinion known and see what happens. I don't know that you get a lot of movement on it, but th- th- that's where things get interesting, and that's where you're really putting teams foot like feet to the fire. Like it's easy if you're wh- whether you're a general manager or as you were doing in 2K, just kind of like running a team virtually. Like yeah, if you're running the Hornets, trading Co- Kelly Oubre is something that kind of makes sense for everybody. Um, but there are situations in which like even the guys who may want to move on or may have reason to move on, they're just too important to deal. And so they're they're now positioned like, do you want to take this extension that may be actually pretty decent to what you may get in the free agent market for all the reasons you specified, especially the fact that there just aren't a lot of like teams positioned to be big spenders? Like, do you take that extension? Do you play it out? Like, what is the value to you of not only getting a new deal that's at the m- number you want, but like even just seeing what's out there in terms of like other opportunities that could be available to you, even just like playing, you know, the daydream game of like, I could live in Los Angeles, you know, that's, that seems like a pretty cool thing that I want to do. And so like how teams and how players are navigating that during this stretch, especially, I mean, it's going to be fascinating. Right. And there are all sorts of things that players can prioritize and having clarity is good. And I mean, we're also seeing one of the alternate visions for this Kyle Kuzma's teammate, Bradley Beal did, and Beal has more equity with the wizards than Kuzma does, but he got his money. And then if he eventually wants to go somewhere else, Beal can make that happen. It's a lot easier if you are a star to do that, but generally you can. But are you willing to sacrifice time and circumstance for a larger payday if that larger payday is even there? And so like for Kuzma, I mean, the Wizards, I'm sure the Wizards will fall over all over themselves to give him a lucrative offer. And that might end up just just ruling the day. And I will not I will not blame Kuzma. And maybe he wants to be with the Wizards. But those decisions are extremely important. And then I guess an ancillary one, just because I, I didn't want to forget about it, is also how some of the teams approach this. So for example, one of the selling points points for the Lakers of making a Russell Westbrook trade is that you you don't lose that salary spot because a significant portion of it could become cap space if they're willing to let basically everyone walk. But you could also get depth that'll or good players, player singular players, plural, that will be on your team for years to come. And that was part of the idea behind the rumored heel Turner thing before. But we're also going to get a really big signal from the Lakers, not only in terms of what they're, how they're approaching this year, but how they're approaching the 2023 offseason. And normally you wouldn't care about a team that doesn't have max cap space, but the rules are a little bit different when it's the Lakers, in part because there is a direct through line to Kyrie Irving and Draymond Green there, two of the largest variables in the offseason that we can imagine. 
Well, two of the largest variables in the league, frankly. Sure. I mean, so so what are those markers for you as far as like, what are the signals you're looking for from the Lakers? So I think the basic part is, do they materially change their spending power in 23? Because there are lots of ways they could do that with the Westbrook trade, with a Beverly, with a Kendrick Nunn kind of combined deal. You could, you could get there too, because I could see Irving or Draymond taking less than they're like the maximum any other team would be willing to offer, whether that's their max or not. But I don't see them taking, you know, 15 or 20 just to just for the privilege, especially considering we don't see the Lakers as a, you know, necessarily with either of those guys as being like the title contender. Yeah. And, th- and that's where the, as you mentioned, like the the different rules, the Lakers rules as they exist. And I guess there's a couple teams that are kind of in, in the similar era, but no one quite like that franchise. As far as if you can get one of those guys in the door, what else can you accomplish with whether it's the accrued salary from a Russell Westbrook trade, whether it's the combination of picks, like what is it that they can move that other teams can't? And I mean, it's the reason they come up in every conversation. It's like, I want to stop talking about the Lakers, but they just have more facility to complete meaningful trades than anyone else. And so it's like, how do you stop talking about them during the, you know, around the trade deadline in the going into the offseason, especially when they have such a clear motivation to be better than they are. And especially when they have one of the best players on the planet, they have arguably the second best player of all time who is in the twilight of his dominance. And so how they approach this matters. And they've won a recent championship and everything else. So yeah, they're, we're, we're talking about them in the last couple of minutes of this, but they are relevant for that. Um, last question, what teams, what situations are you going to be watching most intently over the next couple of weeks? Mm, On the court, question. trade deadline, whatever you want to go. I find myself, like, I, just find, I feel the magnetic pull of the Bucks for me. Because they're a team that could rightly sit on their laurels from a trade standpoint and say like we know what we have when we're healthy we trust in these guys Giannis for example I mean, is as trustworthy as any superstar in the league in terms of his capacity to show up and perform and and display absolute maximum effort in the games that matter and dominate games that matter and yet it seems like they they do have such pronounced needs and their offense has been so wobbly even when sometimes when Drew and Giannis are out there, but Chris is not, which is a situation in which you would expect them to still be really successful, but they've had stretches where they haven't. I just, I cannot get a feel for where they are. And as, you know, especially staring down an Eastern Conference where Boston has been so good, where Brooklyn has really put things together, where I do have a lot of faith in Cleveland, where I do have a lot of respect for, especially Joel Embiid, and certainly like this rally over, I don't know, the last like 45 days or so that the Sixers have been able to put together. There's just more of a spotlight on the Bucks at this point in the season than I expected. And some of that is like their defense trending down just a little bit from best in the league with a bullet to kind of up in the mix with a bunch of other teams. I think right now they're kind of leveling out at like second or third. I just thought they would be on more stable ground by now. And I'm very curious to see how they as an organization read that fact. I love the idea and the kind of unstable ground idea is going to lend itself to a couple of of them for me. And that's especially teams that like that might still be evaluating going ahead of ahead of the deadline. So like the Phoenix Suns. Yes, a part of this is that they've been incredibly shorthanded, but how these next couple weeks go is going to inform what James Jones wants to do. They also have the weird ownership situation that's important. Like the Blazers and Wolves, how how do they interpret what has happened this season more broadly in the last couple weeks? Like, do they think they're in the mix? Do they think they're going to make noise next year? Like, where where are they in, in this whole process? And then. Some of these young teams, like there, there is a window now that we know that they're like, we brought up the like tank optional. So like 
we'll we'll get to see some good games from the Thunder and the Magic. And I think the season is going to lend itself to those teams still competing, but we don't know for how long. And so picking your windows with them, I mean, I watched a fair amount of on the other end of that of Hornets Rockets the other day, because you want to get to see those teams against kind of a more similar opponent. I mean, I think what I'm what I'm learning from this conversation, from that layout especially, is like I can't remember a trade deadline in which I had a worse feel for what will actually happen. Agreed. I, you know, and, and some of that is just the season as a whole. I feel like you know I, I'm just coming off vacation last week, and it's like I come off vacation, and the standings are completely different, the league feels completely different, and there's some of that anytime you check out for any period of time. But this season especially, and sometimes you're watching all the games, and still you look up after 10 days or 15 days, and nothing is quite where you thought you left it and so like how we're supposed to kind of get a feel for those things in real time and how these organizations are supposed to in like an empirical meaningful like we're going to make exacting moves based on this data kind of way it just seems impossible and so i'm i'm fascinated to see you know like there there really is no clear indication of like where teams think they are than the trade deadline like this is your last best chance to upgrade your roster like the guys you're going to get past this point are just not really like meaningful nba movers and shakers in any way in terms of like buyout candidates generally speaking it's like how much faith do you have in what you have and how much faith do you have in even your young guys ability to perform for example in ways that they they never have before like you know if, what do you, what do the Sixers really think of Tyrese Maxey like do they think he is ready for what is about to be thrown at him over you know potentially multiple consecutive seven game series with very different matchups like we'll see well, you know what what do the Cavs think of their core and what what do they think of Karis LeVert or Isaac Okora like what do they think of these plug and play options that are available to them i'm I'm not envious to be in that spot i mean i'm I'm increasingly coming around to the perspective of like just like how like being the president of the united states is just about like the worst job i can i can imagine like running an nba team seems like an awful job i'm i'm very thankful to be on this side of things it's a pretty good place to be uh i think trust and belief are going to be two of the key kind of elements of it moving forward and i will thank you so much for taking the time thanks danny really appreciate it thanks again to rob mahoney for taking the time to come on you can read his excellent work at the ringer you can also of course listen to his excellent work on the ringer nba show love having him on you can also follow him on twitter at rob mahoney r-o-b-m-a-h-o-n-e-y love having him on whenever we have the opportunity to chat and to kind of put things into perspective it's it's something that i enjoy talking about with rob on the air and of course off the air when we're lucky enough to when i'm lucky enough to be around him and to do so a couple weeks ahead of the trade deadline is particularly useful for me and i hope for him too i think so if you want to support the show there are a lot of different things you can do you can subscribe download every episode really whatever podcast player you use apple spotify it just it's good habit because real gm radio is never going to come out on a specific day of the week it's just my availability guest availability it's not going to be scheduled so if you put it in there then it'll just pop in whenever it's ready you can also help other people find the show that can be leaving a rating and review in your podcast player that can also be word of mouth but the single most important thing you can do for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors for us that is rocket money go to rocketmoney.com slash real gm this one is a custom url not a promo code or anything like that again it's rocketmoney.com slash real gm and also betonline.ag use the clns50 promo code to get yourself a 50 percent welcome bonus on your first deposit and of course also tell them that you came from us you can also support check out my other work Dunked On and Dunked On Prime, Nate and I are knee-deep in our deadline previews. Of course, that also means the mock trade deadline is coming soon. Very excited about that. Gonna Well, I mean, a lot of my prep is those podcasts, but my, my prep will come soon. I actually don't know what teams I have yet. 
Also, of course, the great work with John Hollinger and Seth Partnow is now in the mix, and Dan Feldman does Daily Dunks. It's a really great group now, and the Discord community is fabulous as well. Also, have a couple pieces coming out at The Athletic. I referenced the Bulls one with Rob. I think that's coming out on Friday, and then also a big collaborative project um, with Sam Vecini and Seth Partnow on the trade deadline. That is dropping, I believe, on Friday as well, so should have a lot of stuff there that you can read. Between the two, I think, oh, I don't even want to do a word count. It's probably over six, 7,000 between the two, so that should be fun. Also, the NBA strategy stream will be back early next week. We're doing Rockets Wolves on Monday. I can't remember what time it is. I think it's 8 Eastern, 5 Pacific, but I'm not 100% on that. You can find it. We'll, of course, tweet about it. All that fun stuff. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I will try to reply. I admit that I'm not the greatest at that, but I do read them. That's important to me. I, I, I have them go into a separate folder and make sure I go through it. But that is all for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.